Here we go. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to add much blessing to the reading of his word. Let's do that now. Lord, please, if there's things you want us to see and to know, would you open our hearts? Lord, we need spiritual encouragement. Uh, we need to see spiritual things more clearly. Would you open the door to these things that so often feel distant to us? Lord, many of us come today on spiritual life support and need that encouragement. Lord, would you bless us? Many of us here just want to be able to taste good things that are not of this world, that are better than this world can offer. Please, Lord, would you show us your Son, the Lord Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so young people, that's you lot there. You three, this way, okay? That's some of you lot there. Okay, Janice, that's you as well. Okay? So somebody comes along to you this week and says, Right, you Christian people, who are you? What does it mean to be a Christian? And there's so many ways in which we could begin to answer that. Who are we as believers if we are one? Or if you're not one, what would it look like for you to become one? How are you going to explain it to your friends? Because sooner or later you're going to have a conversation about it. What about your work colleagues? What about on Wednesday when somebody gives you, Jane, a difficult question? Or you're screwing something in with your carpentry buddies? What are you going to say? How are we going to know what to say quickly? Well, listen, the simple answer is we're Jesus people. We are people who have hitched our lives, if we are Christians, to Jesus. Not so much his teaching, though that is definitely true, or his agenda, but that's definitely true. But we've hitched ourselves to him. We are betting our life on him. So, George, find somebody this week who you can go up to and talk to and say, I've hitched my life and bet my life on Jesus. And they'll look at you and they'll think you're a plant pot. But it's okay because you'll be able to talk about that next week when Matty and Mark come up and talk about who we've been having conversations with. We have first and foremost connected ourselves to him. We've said he is the answer to life's big questions. He is the source of life. He is our hope for truth. He is our hope for this life and the next. I think I want everything in my life to rotate and revolve around him. I want to dwell on his and hang on his every word. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian. You two, you need to not be looking down yet. I want you to look at the Bible in a minute. You need to be listening to this, okay? Tune in properly. 
That's what it means to be in the Christian. So in that case, if that's the case, why do I find it so easy to think about almost everything other than him? Or am I the only one? No, am I? Some of you are on spiritual life support and you're worn out and exhausted, flustered by the cares and concerns of this world. And if you were to put your hand up to me asking whether that was you, I would probably join you in that. Life seems to be busy, fast-paced. It seems nobody has any time for Jesus whatsoever. And it's hard, isn't it? So that's why we are going to spend a long time just looking at Jesus. And there's no better place in the Bible to go for that. Because Mark's gospel has got it all stripped out. It's dramatic, it's hyperdrive, it's fast moving. The words that come up again and again are immediately, and then, and. It's fast moving. It's almost as if Mark, well, Mark tells you what he's trying to do. He's trying to give you a gospel. He's not merely trying to give you a life story of Jesus, a biography. Because if he was, he'd put in details of, like, uh, of birth and, uh, and all that kind of thing. He's not doing that. He's not, just, he's not giving you a chronology because some of the stuff is actually out of order. He's not merely giving you a history, although everything is historical. He is trying to put Jesus into your face and say, look, watch what he does. There's even less of what he says here, although there's plenty of what he says and he interprets everything he does. But he just wants to put Jesus in front of you and me so we won't be escape, able to uh, escape him. So we will fix our eyes upon him. Now, if you're a believer here today, that's great news for you because that's what we need to do. We need to see him. We need to love him and treasure him and focus upon him. And if you're, if you're not somebody who's decided to, to follow Jesus, or if you're on the fence a little bit here today, you need to sort of know who we're, we're saying to, what, what we're offering here today. We're saying, this is the guy we want you to hitch your life to. Okay. Uh, what do you think if one day I sort of drag some guy kicking and screaming home to my house, I say, Becky, this is the guy I want you to hitch your life to, okay? Apart from saying, but what about Dan? She'd probably say a whole stack of other things as well, but I don't even know him, and what's he like, and how can I... Yeah? You'd sort of, well, in that case, you're in the best place, aren't you? Because we're going to see the person who we're going to live for, hitch our life to, and be connected. Now, do we need that as a church? Please give me some kind of response, people. Do we need that as a church? Thank you, we do, don't we? Because this is a team thing. When we open God's Word together, we're actually sitting next to each other with our elbows going bumping next to each other. This is what we need to think and dwell on, and we do that together. And It's hard on our own. So, he's going to let us know about who Jesus is. Uh, hold on, where's my bit of pay? I'm almost losing the plot here, and I've only just got going. Right, okay, and we're going to answer three big questions. These are they, okay? Who is he? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? Is that simple enough for you? By the end of the time, in fact, almost by every sermon that we look at, we'll be able to answer those three questions. Who is he? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? It puts us right in front of him, face to face. We're going to go face to face with him. We're going to make a choice, and it will confront us a little bit. In fact, there's a chance that it might actually divide us. I say we're all in this together. It might divide us because there'll be those of us who believe and follow, and seeing him will shape us, we'll grow, we'll recover from all our own selfishness, we'll be made new, and all the good things that he wants to bring in, he will bring in. But there's some of us here who, as you look at Jesus, and I really hope it's not you, whoever you are who I'm talking to right now, 
as you look at him, you will become less believing and more rejecting. Now, it doesn't make me happy to say that, but that's always what happens when people get confronted with Jesus. They either believe and follow or reject and start saying, this is ridiculous, he's delusional, it's nonsense. So we're not messing about here. Okay? So, now I want you to watch this. Okay, I want you to watch this. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, it almost sounds a little bit, where else in the Bible does that come? Genesis, what's it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's almost as if Mark's saying, recreation time. In the beginning, the gospel. Now, you lot have been sitting under a gospel ministry enough, long enough to know what the word gospel means. What does it mean? Good news, but it was a military term used by, under the Roman cult. It was very common uh, in the first century, and it was basically if there was a threat coming against a people... The emperor and his armies would sort it all out. They would take their their forces off. He would lead. He would defeat the threat. He would overcome the enemy. And they would send a gospel back. It is a declaration of you're safe, good news, all been accomplished, not by you. The conquering king has done it. So here we have a declaration, a good news. Do you see it as that? Now stop there for a second. Some of you are sitting there and go, I really want to see it as that. So in that case, right now as I'm saying this, pray, Lord, help me to grasp how good this good news is. But if you're sitting there and going, well, there's plenty of other good things. There's other things that have got my attention that I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we live in the middle of an estate that, is, that views this gospel not as good news, but as humdrum, boring and dull. It views it as restrictive and devoid of power and utterly unnecessary. And you sense this. Maybe when you became a Christian, or if somebody becomes a Christian in the next week, which would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Somebody becomes a Christian, and they they go bounding into their school or into their workplace, and they go, I've become a Christian! It's good news! And your mates go, oh, I'm so happy for you. Um, Oh, that's, oh, wow, that's really good. Good news, that, isn't it? And secretly they're thinking, oh, great, he's going to become, or she's going to become restrictive, judgmental, critical, bigoted, and narrow. Mark seems to think that this is the best news. He thinks that, seems to think it's wonderful. Look what I've got here. Look what I've got here. I met somebody who thought this was wonderful news this week. Can you see what that is? It's one of them boring forms. It's Sam's boring form, but she had to do something, and it, she got so excited about it, she had to dash into my office and tell me and Jane all about it. And you see, there's a little box that says, what religion are you? It says Christian. He said... I take the box. Good news. You know, there's that verse in the Bible, isn't there? Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. For some of you, and it is hard, we can't walk on that all the time. But even now, be praying right now, Lord, if there is something good about this, that I want to just capture a little bit of why Steve's got a photocopy of Sam's form. Be praying that now and say, Lord, help me to see this good news. Help me to see it. Are you where Sam is? Pray now and ask that you could be. Um, Perhaps we'll be helped by thinking about why is it good news? And the answer is, it's good news if it really fixes a serious problem. 
And if you want to see the seriousness of the problem, we need to step into first century Judaism and we need to see one big word that pops up a number of times in this passage. The problem is, is it's in the wrong word in the NIV. In this word, in the NIV, starts with a D and I want it to start with a W. It starts with a D and I want it to start with a W. Okay, where are they? In the... Gosh, you can whisper it louder, brother, you can help me. Desert. But that's actually the word... Wilderness. Somebody's taught you the Bible well. This is good, okay. It's the word wilderness. Now, the wilderness is clearly a desert-like place, but it is so much more than that in the book of Mark. In fact, it's so much more than that in the whole of the Bible. It has a history, and it goes back to the book of Isaiah. Let's just read those verses 2 and 3. It is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one in the wilderness in the desert prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him and so John came baptizing in the wilderness in the desert what is this wilderness place well it's a place of dryness despair it's the very opposite of Eden do you remember Eden where all is well and everything is right and our humanity is all in one piece and we're all okay and we're totally satisfied and we don't carry any guilt and nothing crushes us with fear we don't worry about what other people think of us and we've got no fear of facing death because death is just not has no place there there is no brokenness at all the wilderness is the opposite of Eden And the children of Israel in the first century were in, spiritually, the wilderness. They were in it politically because they were crushed and oppressed by the Romans, which was never what God's people were supposed to be. But that's where they were languishing. And the big question is, why? And in that case, you need to go back to the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel will tell you exactly why. Let me read it to you. Make sure you pricked up your ears and you're listening. Here we go. But the children rebelled against me, says the Lord. They did not follow my decrees, they were not careful to keep my laws, although the man who obeys them will live by them, and they desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said, I will pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the... But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what was... uh, what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out... Also, with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the desert, the wilderness, that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the the countries. They are in a dark place because of their sin. They're out there in the wilderness. Yet the hope of the book of Isaiah was that wouldn't be forever. Their disgrace, their despair, their brokenness would give way to something of Eden breaking back in if you like heaven coming back down to meet them and that's why it's written in Isaiah the prophet actually it's a a quote from Malachi and Isaiah and they put the big dog's name up Isaiah over Malachi because Isaiah has how many chapters some of you don't care do you shame on you how many Tony how many Andrea oh come on Isaiah is the same number as the whole bible 66 get with the program people okay Isaiah is the big dog with 66 books Uh, 66 books, 66 chapters. Malachi has a measly how many? How do you know that? Okay, right. And so they're put together like that. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Who's coming into the desert wilderness to fix it and bring Eden back and restore heaven and fix human brokenness? Who's coming? The Lord is coming. What does that mean? 
It means you need to get this. You may, they may be having all kinds of discussion, discussions on the six o'clock news about what is the British foreign policy and what is the, uh, what is the American foreign policy. We know that what God's foreign policy is, it is interventionist. It means he steps in and brings the aid, he overcomes the enemies, and he invades. He is coming, and the place where he's going to come is he's going to step into the wilderness. The Lord is coming. And so through those previous seven or eight hundred years since the prophets were made, uh, promises were made. In fact, let me, let me read a, another one out of Isaiah, where was it, uh, 40, 43, verses 19 to 20. Isaiah 43, verses 19 to 20. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. And this is what the Lord is doing. He's intervening. And so this is a massive moment. John the Baptist comes, appointed by God, says Mark, Mark, to say, guess what? It's all about to go down. This is that moment. The moment that the mums would have been crying out to each other for as the Roman soldiers came in and, and occupied the country. And they were talking to each other. Didn't the Lord promise one day what he would come? And he would fix our plight and end our disgrace. Or at the times when the, the umpteenth funeral was taken in the family and people feared death and they knew it was because of their sin against God. And at that moment they were saying, surely there must be somebody so that death does not have the final word. And through those centuries, the sense of everything being broken and being in the wilderness and not being right, even their return from exile historically was just so disappointing. And they're just agonizing over this. And now a voice in the wilderness starts to speak. Look what happened. How did the people respond? Look, 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 look. What did they, this is how you know how big a deal this was. What did they do? They, what did they do? They went, not, quite, not just went, they went. They went out into the wilderness. They went out into that place. It was almost as if it was slapped on the big... Uh, the, the, the six o'clock news, okay? Aliens will land on Morrison's car park at 6.32 p.m. tonight. Do you reckon everybody will stay home? Because it's such a monumental event, they'll be like, could this be the thing? But that kind of event would be mere curiosity. For them, it was the hope of their heart. So they're going out and they're listening to this strange-looking man who starts to talk about somebody. The one he's talked about isn't named yet, but because Mark wants us to get face to face with Jesus, Mark has already told us his name in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that is immense. John starts to talk about it because the bombshell is going off. God is going to come as a man. He's not a man. And later on he refer, gets referred to as the son of man. But if he was merely a man, that wouldn't be any good to anybody. Because every single man who has ever, ever lived has always been part of the problem. We need the God-man. One commentator said this. If this is true, if God has come, he's changing everything, it means the end of philosophy. What is the basic argument of philosophy? Question mark. 
Is it the universals or the particulars? Is it the ideal or the real? Is it Plato or is it Aristotle? The commentator goes on. So what Mark just said is this. If Jesus is God's son and he is coming into the world, the metaphysical just became physical. The ideal just became real. The unapproachable just became a dude that you can hug. If you're in the wilderness, do you need that? If you're in the wilderness, is that good news? The impossible just became possible. The God-man has arrived and changes everything. And they're flocking out. Do you know that... Do you know what will happen if you let that loose in your heart? Apart from trudging out was them daring to try to believe. I'll tell you what happens if you let that loose in your heart. And begin to pray, even now that this would happen, just drip, drip, drip through the week. It probably won't be a like, powerful light coming down, blowing you apart. This is what will happen. Fear will be banished. Fear so often wants to own us and claim control of the board, doesn't it? You know that experience. But if you know one, the unapproachable who has come near, that changes it, doesn't it? It's not that I have to do stuff to get him, but that he came down to me. And when he comes, I get joy and peace and love. So what does that mean? And this, this is so important for us about the dynamic of how we meet. Please hear me on this one. We don't sing our hymns on a Sunday morning to placate God or earn something out of mere duty. We sing, why? Why do we sing? Why do we stand our self-centered selves up out of our seats and give him our best when, he sing, uh, when we sing? Why do we do that? Because he came for us. Do you believe that? I can tell whether you believe it by how you sing. So what happened? John is excited. So we're seeing already that Jesus is not some mere celebrity. And so often we're too familiar with him. Be praying, saying, Lord, I want to grasp that you should not be familiar to me. Every day should be a new journey into the enormity of the Son of God come into the wilderness for a lost and wayward people. Now, John is excited. Look at him. Oh, hold on, I'm in the wrong bit. Look down at verses 4 through to 6. Hold on, where am I? I've lost my mark. Somebody read verses, uh, sorry, 5 through to 8. Somebody read that for us, please. And so there's this strange thing. He goes out and he's sort of, he, he, this is even better dressed than Prime Arnie, okay? He's dressed in this funky outfit. I'm not suge suggesting that you should repeat this in any way. Uh, it f why does it focus on his, the way he's dressed? Well, it's just to back up what we've already been saying because there was a quote from 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 
that said, Elijah, the great prophet who went out into the wilderness to call the family of Israel back to repentance, to turn away from all their false worship, to find forgiveness of sins in God, that's the way he dressed. And he was like the main big dude of the Old Testament when he came to prophets. He was way up there. He wasn't sort of second division. He was Premier League. And now it's as if John has come and John is dressed that way and it's saying it's heralding in this special moment and look what he does, no surprise. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sin. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. So this is how they got ready. They came out to him. They were prepared to say the coming out is almost a confession of, I am in the wilderness. Now listen, I know you don't want to say that. And I know I don't want to say that. And I know nobody wants to say that. I don't think there is a person in this room who naturally wants to say, I'm not what I want to be. Um, I'm dependent on God's grace. We don't want to say that. We, want to say, we all want to try and build a life where I don't look dependent I don't need, uh, I don't have to admit any kind of need. I don't have to go into the wilderness. But the only place you can meet this king and those who represent him is from that place, that point in your heart where you're prepared to say, I admit my need, I am dependent. I know I want to feel strong, healthy, have means, be respectful. This is a terrible pressure. I think men feel this in certain ways. Women feel this in certain ways. You kids, you know what happens to you if ever you admit any kind of weakness in school. What happens to you? Slaughter, isn't it? It's carnage. But if you're to meet this one, you have to be prepared before him to say, I need, and then make straight paths for him. What you do is that you open the way. You know, uh, it's the first thing that they would do if Queen Elizabeth was to, fi- uh, to come to speak is they would fix the roads. <laughs> they would remove the speed bumps. They would fill the potholes. We would have some glistening black tarmac because they would make way for the king or queen. I was watching, uh, I, I was watching uh, Lord of the Rings. It seems that's almost like an annual thing for us over the holiday. And there's this one bit where you've got King Theoden of Rohan, and you don't need to have seen it to know he's the king. And all, wherever he rides, you've got people going ahead of him, going, make way for the king. So you've got this poor woman with a washing basket. You've got these poor little dudes playing out in the street. You've got these big burly men having a, make way for the king. And they just shift because he's the king. That's what we do. We make way. You don't negotiate with the king, do you? You don't angle for the pieces you're going to hold back. You make way. You get out of his way. Why? Look at this. And this is the bit that caught me. Verse 7. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. Now, in what domain is his power? We're going to see as we move into this gospel the things that Jesus does. Mark puts front and center. This is who he is and this is his power. But it's the power that he brings to fix the wilderness issue, which includes forgiveness of sins. But it includes more than that. Look down. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is not a thing on this planet that can bring spiritual renewal in you. Not a thing. Education won't cut it. Uh, A spray tan won't cut it. More money won't cut it. A new wardrobe won't cut it. It can't bring spiritual renewal. Hurricane Irma 
can't bring, no matter all its power, it cannot bring spiritual renewal. There is only one place in the world you can go for spiritual renewal, and that is Jesus. And notice here, here's this great dude, and it's built up this way. He's the great Elijah, the one everybody's been waiting for, who will announce he really is the greatest of Old Testament promises, because he more clearly than anybody else gets to point out who Jesus is. And then he doesn't say, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm pretty awesome, and he's a little bit better. Look at him. He says, and he who comes uh, um, uh, after me comes one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. If you were a Hebrew slave, you would not be expected to untie the sandals of your master. It was viewed as too menial and dishonoring and disgrace laden. It would only be foreign uh, oppressed slaves who would ever do that. So menial a task. And this great man says of the one who's coming after me, have you got any idea his work? Now the angels have. I so often pray for a heart of an angel and the eyes of an angel to get a sense. I was trying to think of an example that was comparable, but the problem is you can't because such is his work. How do you compare to the living God coming? All I can say is, well, I don't deserve to get anywhere near his sandals. <sighs> Clean and dirty boots. Mucky sandals. But I would beg if Jesus was standing in the room now and says, Anybody, please, please, I'll lick them. I'll do anything. Because they're yours. You're that worthy and deserving. So are you ready? So I don't know what you think of all of this. What we believe is, as Christians is we connect our lives, we hitch our lives to Jesus. We don't just believe his teaching, we don't just open his Bible, we don't just go to his church, we don't just do his bidding. We connect ourselves to him. So we dare to believe that he is this one who brings redemption to people in the wilderness and he is of such great worth. And so what does it mean to follow him? We make way for him. Now, there are people who are outside the church who've seen the enormity of the claim. So I'm reminded of this, and I'm sure I've told you this before. In 1994, the, the Times uh, political sketch writer, he's now a pundit on countless uh, TV programs, Matthew Paris. Uh, he's an ex-member of Parliament. He's very sceptical about Christianity, and this is what he said. And his, his theology is a bit wonky, but you're going to get the point. The New Testament offers a picture a God who does not sound at all vague to me, he has sent his son to earth, they claim. He has distinct plans for each of us personally and can communicate directly with us. We are capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him and are commanded to try. We are told that this can be done only through his son and we are offered the prospect of eternal life and afterlife in happy, blissful, glorious circumstances if we live this life in a certain manner following him. Has he got basically the broad outline, the brush strokes, the sort of, yeah, he's got it basically. And this, but this is the kicker. This is what he says. Friends, if I believe that, or even a tenth of that, how could I care which version of the prayer book was being used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world burning with desire to know more and when I had found out more, to act upon it and tell others. 
How is it possible to be indifferent to the possibility, if one believes it to be a possibility, that a being of this order makes demands of this order upon you and me, and that in 30, 20, 10 years, perhaps tomorrow, we shall be taken from this life and ushered into a new one whose nature will depend upon our obedience to now his will. Far from being puzzled that the Mormons and Adventists should knock on my door, I am unable to understand how anyone who believed that what is written in the Bible could choose to spend his working hours in any other endeavor. And he's sort of right, isn't he? Has he sort of seen something that you and I, and this is, I know you, okay? I know that you want, so many of you, you want to, to have that. That sense of the urgency, that sense of clarity. We're made for a vision to go to that. And that's why we're looking at Mark's gospel. And that's why we're doing it together. Because we've got forgetful hearts. And we need to keep rubbing each other's faces in this, don't we? So, what's the pastor's job? To rub our faces in Jesus. <laughs> because we know if this is true, this is how we've got to live. That's how we've got to follow him. And then what we're going to do is we're going to be a church. We're going to rub our estate's face with Jesus. And we're going to try every little trick and every little gimmick and every little thing we can to try and do this, because if this is true, this is all that matters, people. Do you agree? And that's why we're going to sing the song that we're going to sing. It's a great one. Lift high the name of Jesus. It's one of them old belters. It's a little bit different, and it sings funny. But because of who he is, because he's like, you know, can you imagine in heaven? It's like if somebody just puts out a memo. It goes something like this. Um, uh, would, would uh, anybody out there uh, like to, um, oh, don't want to put you out or nothing. Would anybody like to sing a bit to Jesus? Pick me! I'll do it! Let me, can, can I stand at the front with Steve? Can, please! Because they see his worth. Anybody here want to sing to Jesus? I'll get half a hand up. We've got a long way to go, people. Let's stand and start here, okay? John, no freestyling, remember? Good man.